23 in the New International Version. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his... Sorry, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the men thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And this is God's precious word. Start again. So a friend of mine once told me a story about a country where the road rules allowed you to break the speed limit if you were overtaking someone. The logic of it being that if you needed, you're in a, you know, a one-lane road and you needed to get back in your lane quickly before you hit oncoming traffic, you could do that and not get in trouble. But of course, what soon happened was uh, that police were pulling people over and they were saying, look, you know, I just clocked you doing 130 in a 70 zone. And they said, oh, yeah, look, it was just that white car back there that I was overtaking. Um, and that's, uh, I think, a, a fairly good representation of human nature. There are, you know, we, wanna, we want the exception to apply to us all the time so that we don't have to abide by the rules. And the passage we're looking at this morning begins with a very, a very famous interchange between Jesus and Peter in verses 21 and 22. They weren't read this morning, um, but they lead into what we're looking at. And Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how many times must I forgive uh, my, my brother who sins against me? And, Jesus, and, and at the time, the rabbis uh, taught that you should only forgive someone three times. You've just lost me on the mic, have you? Or are you, am I still on? Okay, sorry. Um, the rabbi said three times for the same offenses, as much as you're going to forgive someone. And so Peter's been hanging around Jesus for a little while, and he says, look, okay, Jesus seems to be stretching the law beyond its limits, so I'm going to go with the biblical number of perfection, seven times. So he says, is seven times enough, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, it's 77 times. Or to translate that, infinitely. Now, we don't have to think terribly hard at the moment to understand how fraught the topic of forgiveness is. We have to just cast our minds to some of the current headlines, and we'll see that 
Uh, there are all sorts of challenges, all sorts of questions that surround what it means to forgive. And we're going to talk about those a little bit. But as we talk about those, we should never forget the 77. As one commentator, a man named uh, Bruner, uh, he put it wonderfully, the 77 means that as Christians we are never ever allowed to give up on somebody. The exceptions might be there, and we're going to have to talk about that, but the thrust of this whole passage is that as Christians we are never ever allowed to give up on someone. So as we look at this, and we look at this difficult topic, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, you know that we live in a broken world, a world that is full of ambiguity, that can be full of pain and hurt and betrayal uh, on unimaginable levels. But we also know that this is the world that you came to save, that you paid a debt that were, uh, to you that was far beyond our capacity to pay, and you paid it freely. And I pray this morning, as we look at your teaching on what it means to live as the people of your kingdom, that you might help us to understand how to fit those two realities together and to live as your people. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you want to look in your Bibles with me, um, we're going to look at the first few verses of this passage, and I think they teach us both about the astonishing grace of God, and I think they also teach us something about what it means to forgive itself. So, verse 23... Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, the first thing we see here is that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about social relationships. The, the literature on forgiveness is littered with people talking about the psychic benefit of forgiving someone. You know, you'll feel better, you'll have all this bitterness bleed out of your life. And that's good and wonderful and true, but that is not Jesus' primary concern here. He wants his people to have their relationships ordered in a way that reflects what he is doing in this world. Forgiveness is a social transaction. It is not about one individual. That's the first thing we learn. As we go on into verse 24. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Uh, the NIV, as you saw, has 10,000 bags of gold. To give you an idea of how much money this was, it was probably more money than was in circulation in that entire region at that time. Um, I was thinking perhaps a better way to put it would be like an individual owing the US national debt. Um, you're going to go bankrupt. Um, it's, it's, an it's a deliberately extreme figure designed to communicate the, the kind of grace that God has. It shows us the kind of debt we have to God, and it's trying, Jesus is trying to show us also, because in this parable the king, of course, represents God, Jesus is trying to show us the kind of grace that God has for us. But we also see here another thing about forgiveness, I think. Forgiveness begins in truth. 10,000 talents is owed. There's a figure there that states clearly what the infraction is. Now, it would be lovely if it was that easy in our own interpersonal relationships. Uh, look, you owe me 300 points of psychic distress, you know, for what you did to me. We could quantify it so easily. It would be lovely. Arriving at an understanding of the truth that needs to be forgiven is going to be fraught and difficult. 
by the very nature of our relationships, but it is the beginning of the process of forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without truth. That is the second thing we learn about forgiveness and we learn about God's grace. So, verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Here we see the the victim rights of the king. This king was owed that money and as a victim of the financial indiscretions of this servant, he had the right to put this man in prison. Now, interestingly, under Jewish law, he didn't have the right to jail his family. But this is a parable of extremes, extreme actions, extreme amounts of money owed, extreme forgiveness. And it's, of course, this wasn't something that was ever going to get his money back. He sold him into slavery, but even if his family had a thousand members, he was never going to get his 10,000 talents back. This was punitive. But it, it was his right as one to whom this debt was owed. But in 26, we see this. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, there's some question here about what the servant is doing. We see later on that the servant doesn't seem to truly understand what was done for him at this point. I will pay you. Is he delusional? Does he not realize the magnitude of his debt? Or is this an act of contrition where he he recognizes the magnitude of, of his indiscretion and he has no other means of saying, I realize that I owe you something, but I don't know what I can give you. We don't know, and I don't think we we really find out here. But we also find a third thing about repentance. Uh, Sorry, about forgiveness, which is repentance. Repentance is owning the truth. Repentance is saying, I acknowledge that what you have said is true, and it means that I have done something to you which needs some sort of restitution. Repentance is a social transaction. It is founded on truth, and it requires repentance. Three things about uh, forgiveness that we have already learned. But then we see an extraordinary, extraordinary act of generosity. In verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 10,000 talents, probably financially ruinous for this king. And he releases him, and he forgives him the debt. Extraordinary act of generosity. An extraordinary act, and also something that teaches us, I think, the last important thing about forgiveness is that forgiving is to surrender your victim rights. The king does not throw him into prison. He does not get the satisfaction of watching him and his family suffer. He does not get any form of financial restitution, however meager in comparison to the son. He surrenders his rights as a victim of this man's financial indiscretion. That's what God does for us in forgiving us. He puts aside any offense, any sort of reciprocity that might otherwise happen. And it's the model for us. When we forgive someone, to forgive them after that process of truth and repentance, to forgive them is to surrender all rights as a victim. It is to give up any claim you have on them. That is what forgiveness entails, and it's radical. 
And we live in a world where we are bombarded with abstractions and large numbers. Uh, ten, you know, 100,000 refugees from Syria have flooded into the Jordan. So the 10,000 talents, I, I, I'm not sure that that does perhaps what it did for Jesus' original hearers in, in the sheer degree of exaggeration that it involves. So I think instead we might have to, to get a sense of what is happening here and with the grace of God, we might have to look at something that a follower of Christ does in imitating him. And that might give us a handle on his grace. So I want to tell you a story this morning, and it's a story that's told by a man called Miroslav Volf, who is probably the preeminent theologian talking about forgiveness today. He's from uh, what, what, Croatia, what was Czechoslovakia, so he's experienced the strife of civil war, but he also has a profound personal story about forgiveness. And I'd like to read you his story about his brother Daniel and his parents. I was one then, and my five-year-old brother Daniel had slipped through the large gate in the courtyard where we had an apartment. He went to the nearby small military base, just two blocks away, to play with his soldiers. On earlier walks through the neighborhood, they had found some friends there, sorry, he had found some friends there, soldiers in training, bored, and in need of a diversion even if it came from an energetic five-year-old. On that fateful day in 1957, one of them put him on a horse-drawn bread wagon. As they were passing through a gate on a bumpy cobblestone road, Daniel leaned sideways and his head got stuck between the doorpost and the wagon. The horses kept going. He died on the way to hospital. A son, a son lost to parents who adored him, and an older brother I would never know. She is a saint. I thought, this mother of mine, who buried four of her six children. Three died in her own womb, and the fourth was killed because those in charge were irresponsible and stupidly careless. My mother's pain was immeasurable, and it did not go away even half a century later. She would talk of Daniel's death on occasions, always mentioning with deep sadness that the night before he was killed, Daniel had asked to sleep in her bed. He slept restlessly, and she slept lightly, even when she was exhausted by factory work, so she denied him what was to be his last wish. The pain of that terrible loss still lingers on, but bitterness and resentment against those who were responsible have gone. It was healed at the foot of the cross as my mother gazed on the son who was killed and reflected about God's forgiveness. In fact, the first lesson in forgiveness, I remember, lay in the story of how they forgave the soldier who was the main culprit, the Word of God tells us to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us, said my parents, and so we decided to forgive. The soldier felt terrible, so terrible, in fact, that he had to be admitted to hospital. My father, with a wound in his heart that would never quite heal, went to visit him, to comfort the one whose carelessness had caused him so much grief, and to tell him that my mother and he forgave him. In the courtroom, too, my father insisted that he and my mother, who was too broken-hearted to take part in the hearing, had forgiven. They wouldn't press charges, he said. Why should one more mother be plunged into grief? This time because the life of her son, a good boy but careless in a crucial moment, was ruined by the hands of justice. After the soldier was discharged from the army and went home unpunished, my father visited him, even though it took him two days to make the trip, 
He was concerned for the soldier and wanted to talk to him once more of God's love, which is greater than our accusing hearts and of my parents' forgiveness. He sat in the room with the man who was responsible for his child's death and talked to him of a love that was greater than his accusing heart. It's an extraordinary story of forgiveness. And in fact, it's, it's yet more extraordinary than that. It was uh, Miroslav's nanny, uh, Aunt Malika, who was responsible for the care of the children at the time. Um, she was the one that let him slip out in the first place. Um, and Miroslav's parents never told him that she was in charge and partly responsible for his brother's death because they did not want it to ruin his relationship with her. And to think they could have punished her by, by souring that relationship, and they didn't. And so she was always able, he was always able to see her as innocent. He only found out after she died. And surely that's what God in Christ does for us. He gazes on us as an innocent, with an innocence that we don't deserve because someone else had taken, had surrendered their rights, had taken that pain. And if, we, if that offers just a little glimpse of God's grace, if we can somehow multiply that by the 10,000 talents, that gives us an idea of, I think, what Jesus is trying to communicate here in this in this parable. But as we said, there are still some issues that we need to talk about. There are some difficulties around the question of forgiveness that we surely need to address in this day and age with the headlines that they are. What about domestic violence? What about a cycle of repentance and violence and repentance and violence? What, is, what does the Bible have to say? What does forgiveness mean in that context? I think if we take the framework that we've seen in this passage and apply it to that situation, it might shed at least some light on it. If you remember that forgiveness is uh, founded in truth, then we might see that a, a, a genuine statement of the truth in that situation is that this cycle has not broken that something else might need to change, that the offender is unable to change by themselves, that they have ruptured a trust that perhaps they will never get back again, and that perhaps they need to leave the situation in which they are in for the safety and well-being of their family because they have never, ever been able to change, and they need to seek help outside of themselves. All that surely would be part of the truth statement in a situation of domestic violence. And a true repentance would be the recognition and taking on board of that truth. Any transaction of forgiveness in that is one that needs to go through that process of truth speaking and genuine repentance which accepts that truth. And I think a Christian teaching around repentance does not engender the cycle of domestic violence that we see in this world. Okay, so, all right, what about someone that won't repent? Or someone that's dead, that you, you can't go towards, that you can't talk to. Well, I think if, 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 if uh, forgiveness is indeed a social transaction, then forgiveness can't take place in its fullness in that situation. Forgiveness cannot happen with someone that doesn't repent. 
because it's not about one person. It's about a, a transaction. It's a social thing. But our stance as a Christian, our posture as the one who is now unable to fulfill that forgiveness, I think, again, needs to be one of the imitation of God's own posture towards us. Where the possibility of forgiveness is always held open. Where the good of the person who wronged us is something that we're seeking and not their harm, even if only in our imagination. Okay, so what about the law? What about judicial punishment? How does that fit in with the question of repentance? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 6 tells us there are certain things that might go before the civil authorities that would be better settled within the context of a church. Lawsuits, financial stuff, stuff that we can perhaps can, uh, do within the body and show that kind of reconciliation without the need of the law. But there are, there, there are going to be offenses that need to go to court um, murder, lesser crimes, they're all going to need to go before the civil... As part of the process of speaking the truth, um, I think they're going to need to... That acknowledgement is going to result in the involvement of civil authorities. So what do we do with that? How do we, how do we as someone who's been wronged against, approach someone who's in the situation where they're uh, facing punishment within court? Well... I think that's something that involves the wisdom and discernment of the church community around that person. But I think the overarching stance must be one, again, of trying to seek that person's good. And it might be very difficult to work out how to do that. It might be very difficult to work out what decisions you need to make that will, in fact, be for that person's good. And I think you need the wisdom of the body around you. But again, your stance, I think this passage teaches us, is one that is always that openness towards being able to surrender your rights as a victim, including those to see that person suffer. Now, they're just three things that occurred to me as I was thinking about it, and I'm sure there are many more. Um, And I certainly don't have the market cornered on wisdom, Um, but I hope that perhaps in your growth groups, these conversations which don't often happen in the church, but should, um, you might be able to have those conversations this week. So, let's look at the second part. Of, of this verse, where we see that those who are truly forgiven, I think those that truly understand forgiveness, are themselves forgivers. So if you want to start at verse uh, 28 with me. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now a hundred denarii, a denarii was the average uh, day's wage for a laborer. So let's say, let's round it up and say it was a year's wages that this guy was owed. That's not insignificant, is it? I mean, if someone owed you a year's wages, it would hurt, right? So it's not an insignificant sum, but it, uh, you know, it it approaches to zero as you compare it to the kind of uh, debt that he owed that was forgiven. So one of the things that I think this teaches us is that (laughs) we're all both perpetrators and victims on a large scale. We all offend against someone, and we're all offended against. No one in this world is a purely innocent victim, which is not to say that someone can't come up to you in the street unprovoked and deck you. 
um, that you can't be innocent in a situation. But taken on a large scale, we are all victims and we are all perpetrators. And sometimes we're hurt in very, very significant ways. But again, this parable is teaching us that the hurt that someone else can do us pales in comparison to the kind of offense that we have caused God in our sinfulness. Verse 29. So his fellow servants fell down, sorry, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay with you, and I will pay you. Does that ring a bell? Is that exactly the same as he had just done? He falls down and he says the same words. What should this servant have done? Should he have heard himself in that plea and remembered the mercy that he had received? Yes. But what does he do? Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And that's the heart of the passage. Should you not have had mercy as I had mercy on you? It teaches us, I think, that those who have had mercy given them, shown them, especially to the kind of scale that God has shown mercy to us, that the only appropriate response is to in turn show mercy. And to show it, I think, out of the experience of that mercy. So in verse 35, in anger his master delivered him to the torturers, until he should pay all the debt. Roman uh, jails used uh, torturers. Uh, they found that if they tortured the prisoner, the fan- friends and family would raise money quicker. Um, and uh, verse 35, so, all, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. <clears throat> now, I, I, you know, we particularly don't like that last verse, I think. Um, that threat... It doesn't do particularly well with our more general theology and our understanding of God. What do we do with that? Well, I think we need to remember, if you think of a verse or a few verses like Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it says, you know, God showed this grace. He saved you, not by works, but by faith, so that um, you, He will be glorified in the good works that He prepared for you to walk in beforehand. We're saved for good works. Grace is not free. Sorry, grace is free, but it's costly. We are saved for good works. The Bible's very clear about that. And Jesus is saying that this is what the people who are part of my kingdom will look like and the kind of thing that they will do. But the threat, I think, is not the heart of the passage. The heart of the passage is the goodness of God. The heart of the passage, I think, tells us that if we somehow are able to grasp the astonishing grace that God has showed us in forgiving us, then somehow our own forgiving will be able to flow out of that. I think we as Christians are sometimes very much like the dwarves in the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. If you don't know it, there's a, a a place, it's written by a man called C.S. Lewis, and there's sort of a parallel world 
to our world, where there are talking animals and other races and all sorts of other things. And in the last book that C.S. Lewis wrote about uh, Narnia, it's called The Last Battle, uh, everything kind of uh, is being transformed right at the end into the new heavens and the new earth. And there are these dwarves which are self-centered, self-focused, and sort of refuse to open themselves up to God's grace. And there's a lovely little bit uh, where Aslan, the Christ figure, is, is, is trying to show them his goodness and they won't accept it. It goes like this. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought that they were eating and drinking under the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling, till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. I think that's the perfect picture of what we are like so often as Christians. This morning we held a goblet of very, very, very good wine in our hands. And to go out and to be unforgiving is to treat it like donkey water. It is to devalue it in an astonishing way. And so my prayer this morning is that as we enter this time of worship, as we enter the bread and the cup that we held in our hands, that we might have a fresh revelation of the goodness of God and that that might help us as we go out into the world to do the very difficult work of forgiveness. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, seeing a parable like this is, uh, is challenging for us, Lord. But the reality of the pain and the hurt, sometimes almost inconceivable that others have caused us, Father, is something that we cannot overcome on our own. And we acknowledge that forgiveness is a divine act. It is something that we can only do by the power of your Spirit. And so I pray that you minister to us this morning, that you help us to understand our situation, that you help us to understand what you have done for us, Lord. And I pray that as a community, encouraging one another and by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to look a little more like this community of the kingdom of heaven. Help us, Lord, as we have been forgiven, to be forgivers. Amen.